Welcome to 10 Minute TechCom. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Huiling Ding, an assistant professor of technical communication and rhetoric at North Carolina State University. She'll be talking with us about her new book, Rhetoric of a Global Epidemic, Transcultural Communication about SARS. Welcome, Dr. Ding. What can we learn from a rhetorical analysis of the transcultural rhetoric surrounding the SARS epidemic? Right, I think that's a really one of the overarching questions I asked too when I studied the project because I focus more on the transcultural rhetoric. So we think about the global flow of people, of media discourses, of ideas in addition to the global flow of people and viruses, and then how these global flows may cause disjunctures because of their negotiations and then controversies surrounding a lot of topics. The rhetorical analysis offers a very powerful tool to understand how we actually rhetorically construct or socially construct epidemic at various levels. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we have institutional discourses, mass media discourses, and then professional discourses from public health officials and then communities affected by SARS and communities threatened with the invasion of SARS, like in the United States, right? We didn't have too many cases here. Mm -hmm. Then we felt the threat coming with international travelers, international students, and global travelers. The rhetorical analysis basically offers me the tool to look at the ecologies. You know, we, we have the concept of rhetorical ecologies, the multi-level interaction of stakeholders, uh, writers, and different power structures not only among countries, but also within the countries at different levels, institutional and communal levels. And I think because of the rhetorical lens that, I, that we can use, it offers us a more interactive analysis surrounding the SARS epidemic. How do we talk about epidemics in general, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, because there will be competing narratives. The World Health Organization, for instance, I, I am now working on our second book project on the quarantine discourses. Okay. And I'm now studying Canada, right? So the World Health Organization would say, well, on April the 23rd, 2003, well, Toronto should be listed in their travel advisories because mm -hmm. it has an ongoing epidemic in the city. And then the US CDC came in and said, well, Toronto is safe. <laughs> Don't want to go there, right? And then Toronto, you know, the city and the federal government, they sent officials to negotiate with WHO. So we see this global negotiation of risks, right? Risk definitions, risk control mm -hmm. approaches going on at that time, both at the institutional level and a lot of dramatic moments in the mass media as well. And then there were the communal responses from Toronto. Basically, you know, we lost so much business because of the WHO travel advisory. So you politicians had better help us <laughs> to get us off the travel advisory. Right. Us, yeah. So a lot of their political struggles, I think, have been played out at the institutional and media and then communal discourse levels. Mm -hmm. And I think without their uh, rhetorical lens, it's quite difficult to track all the players Mm -hmm. going on at the same time, right? And then how each of them play some role in the negotiation processes. Yeah, that's a really interesting example, the Toronto example. How did alternative media and informal risk communication play a role in the rhetoric of the SARS epidemic? That's one of the very interesting things. It's almost like 
I was looking more at the institutional discourses, and then I found all those noises <laughs> in the data that I explored. So, for instance, at the very beginning of uh, the SARS epidemic in southern China, in Guangzhou province, there was a massive wave of panic buying. Basically, people all rushed, everyone rushed to their doors to grab like water, cooking <laughs> oil, rice, and everything. Because of the text messaging that was going on at that time, so basically a lot of rumors were sent out actually by medical workers who were worried. Huh. Yeah, they saw the colleagues infected by what is called the index cases of mm -hmm. SARS who were infecting 50 to 100 people at a time, and they knew nothing about the disease, and they had no cure, and they saw the patients dying very quickly. So they were really concerned, and they, their hospitals reported the cases to their provincial public health bureau, which then reported to the uh, health ministry of China. And then there were official orders basically saying, well, we don't know anything at that time. So you'd better keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and here we found a solution, right? There were a lot of exchanges of official orders, notifications, clinical guidelines, you know, within the public health and clinical institutions, but nothing was released to the public. So the medical workers actually became the whistleblower, the anonymous whistleblower, and they sent messages and used word of mouth uh, to warn their own relatives and friends mm. about it. But you know, word of mouth can never be contained, right? The friends passed their risk messages to their own friends and their friends' friends. So mm -hmm. we suddenly saw this massive wave of text messaging, which basically paralyzed the entire system uh, right after the Spring Festival ended. So that massive panic buying throughout the province actually became the first the first warning sign that broke the official silence. Hmm. And it got covered in Hong Kong media, I think in some Western media. And then right at that time, there were a few avian flu cases in Hong Kong, I think three cases in one family. So there were all those confusion about, you know, what's going on? Do we have avian flu? Okay, you know, should we do something? So that became one of the most interesting moments of alternative media and the informal participatory risk communication. And then another case was equally, which was equally interesting was three Hong Kong IT engineers, young engineers in their early to middle 20s. You know, they were very angry about Hong Kong health officials' rejection to release any location-specific information about SARS cases. Mm -hmm. So where would we have SARS cases identified, right? We should avoid those buildings. You know, something should be done about that. But the officials refused to do that. And then the IT engineers actually created an independent website for their own friends, again, for families and mm. friends to see, you know, which places they should be avoiding. But then it quickly became their central place for everyone to be visiting. They attracted thousands and thousands of visitors in one day. Mm -hmm. And they, they decided to make their website open to the public and said, well, if you see any notification in, in your building about SARS cases, let us know, send us photos. And then they, they will be, they would be doing their quality control. They would be calling the public health institutions and then their building management offices to verify that the, those places indeed hide SARS cases before posting those locations in their own unofficial site. And then 
one week, I think maybe less than one week after they started that movement, Hong Kong public health officials actually decided to do the same thing. <laughs> so their unofficial, you know, grassroots efforts actually helped to push their official risk communication processes in a lot of interesting moments. And I think we should be paying attention to those moments and see how can we do that in future. For instance, in Ebola, if we have any underreporting going on. Mm-hmm. Well, great. And that leads to the last question, which is how can health and professional communicators actively participate in and help shape transcultural conversations about epidemics or that may help people coordinate and work together to contain epidemics? Great question. I think uh, one of the important concepts is civic in infrastructure. Again, I'll go back to the case of Canada. Canada has two waves of SARS, and the first wave of SARS ended in early May when, I mean, the epidemic didn't really disappear. Mm-hmm. The virus was simmering in one of the hospitals at that time, but then the officials took the action and say, well, we decided we, we don't think we have any cases going on here. Mm-hmm. So the city is free of SARS and we'll get rid of all those precautions. Mm-hmm. Don't wear gloves. Don't wear masks. Don't wear protective gowns. Stuff like that. And then the clinicians, the, the hospital workers knew they had suspicious cases going on at that time. But then they didn't have any infrastructure to get the message out. And they had no way to basically say, look, we do have cases and your case definition is wrong. That's what I mean when we say uh, civic infrastructure, some way for them to basically to say we have credible information and you have to take it into consideration. Also in quarantines, when we put people under quarantine, they can't get out of their home for extended periods of time. Usually it's like 10 days, two weeks. If we get quarantined, we still have to eat. <laughs> we still have to function. We still have to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. So we need community support and we need income from the government. So that's another layer of infrastructure. How do we work as a community to make sure that people who actually go into quarantines can still have the basic needs covered mm-hmm. and can still have the basic rights covered. And for those people and quarantine, most of them didn't really develop SARS, maybe 10%. Right. We can't risk, right? We can't take the risk of letting the 10% getting out. Mm-hmm. Because 90% of those people who would be under quarantine wouldn't develop the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I think their infrastructure is a very important question to consider mm-hmm. uh, for health and professional communicators. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight. It's a very fascinating project. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for the great questions, too.